So what I'd like to do this morning is to, in a way, continue from our exploration of the Four Noble Truths that we've looked at the last four weeks. And the, those very basic teachings of the Buddha, really the central teachings of the Buddha, about the... There's a handout at the, on, the, on the chair in the back. That's my, that's my mama. <laughs> Any case. So we're, we're wanting to uh, really base ourselves on what we've explored before, which was really looking at where there's any kind of suffering, any kind of um, movement, really any movement away from the present moment. Uh, we usually see that most readily when we experience what we call suffering, some kind of unpleasant experience in relation to the present moment, whether mild or medium or, or fairly intense. And in the explorations of the last four weeks, we've, we've like very much like the teachings of the Buddha, used that as an entryway to really work with the question of what really brings about the deepest kind of happiness and freedom. It's a very profound teaching that says that, in fact, there is suffering, suffering understood not simply as the presence of the unpleasant, but rather the reactivity to the unpleasant. And also we saw that, in a way, there's a kind of suffering when we're reactive in relation to the pleasant as well. And it points to the quality of a kind of reactive or compulsive or unconscious grasping or pushing away as the root of that kind of suffering. It's really, it's really uh, the, the link with this compulsive quality. Um, and then pointing to the possibility of a kind of a peace, a freedom, a, a deep sense of well-being which, in a way, is uh, more profound than any pleasure that we get simply from having a particular sight or sound or experience. But rather, there's a, uh, the, this is really the, right at the center of the teachings of the Buddha, that there is a human potential for a deep quality of peace which, which um, can be present whether there is a strong pleasant experience or a strong unpleasant experience or a mild or medium of any of those. So this is really the teaching. And then the fourth truth being the the practical path towards that kind of uh, freedom, really. That kind of freedom and ability, therefore, to be very skillful with anything that comes up. That's what we're here for, isn't it? It's really to touch that peace and to be more and more skillful with the range of human experiences that, as it were, come at us. Um, and so today I want to focus, we might say, on an application of those four truths, and one that's particularly uh, relevant and poignant in our lives, which is the uh, challenge of working with situations in which we, form, we find ourselves forming a kind of dualistic opposition with another person. In other words, in which we have opponents or enemies. And they can be, again, it can be mild or medium. Sounds like, sounds like how do you like your steak or something? How do you, how do you like your opponents? Mild, medium, or rare? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, 
And so what my intention is today is to offer us, and I did this handout uh, last night because I thought it'd be actually helpful to have this laid out. And so this is actually kind of, I don't usually do this, but it's kind of like the skeleton of my talk or the, um, the outline. So you can take this home, if you so choose, and work in the next week using these guidelines because it's a very specific practice for how to work with people with whom we are forming opponents uh, or forming them into opponents or enemies. And what I'd invite you to do also as, as we work through these, there are really six steps here. As we work through them, what I'd like to, you to reflect on is bring to mind the, mm, the opposition that you may have explored at the end of our meditation and you know, the concrete situation with another person and you could almost take that situation through each of these steps in your own reflections. And that can, I think, although it's not exactly the same as being with the situation in its immediacy, there's a lot that can be learned by that kind of reflection. And so, so my intention is to do that and primarily cover the first five and then do a little bit more with the sixth uh, next time. And to me, this is one of the most powerful ways that we can apply our practice, that, that in a way, in our meditation, we study how we can be present to whatever is occurring. And we know that's easier with some parts of our experience than others, that it's easier to be present when we have you know, peaceful feelings, pleasant experiences in our bodies, maybe not so many thoughts and so forth. And it's harder to be present when we may have unpleasant sensations in our bodies, difficult emotions or thoughts and so forth. And partly what we learn to do in our practice is we learn the tool of this very simple basic tool of mindfulness which lets us be present with whatever is occurring as much as possible without judgment or reactivity. It's a profound tool. Mindfulness is such a modest word Maybe we should have a word that's more dramatic, <laughs> you know, that, because it's, it's a, such a uh, powerful human capacity, because it's the inability to be aware and mindful which gets us locked into suffering, to, or one of, one of the reasons we get locked into suffering. And so the application of mindfulness and the wisdom teachings to the ways that we form dualities with other persons is one of the most powerful ways to apply these teachings to our real lives to, and, and to, obviously, to the world. It doesn't solve all our problems, but it gives us a number of tools to work with. You know, and we may ourselves learn much better how not so easily to form dualistic oppositions with others. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean that they will do the same with us. <laughs> There's, there's a famous line that the Buddha said. He said, I do not fight with the world, but the world fights with me. He might say, the world fights with me sometimes. And so the aim of this practice is to give us tremendous, uh, I think, uh, um, an aid to how we work with the situation. I was thinking about this topic for the last, uh, really the last week, Three days ago, 
I had a dream um, and reflecting on how do I relate to people with whom I post. I had a dream in which I had a, a long conversation with George W. Bush. I'd like to tell you the dream. <laughs> Here is the dream, three days ago. I am sitting one-on-one talking with George W. Bush. We have some history. He knows me some. Not actually true, but in the dream that's true. I tell him I've been reviewing some of the decisions about invading Iraq. (laughs) Looking at his initial rationales for, for invading, I tell him that I have a file on the situation. (laughs) I don't tell him that I've been making comparisons with the initial period of Nazi Germany. Mm. That's in the dream. I show him my notes and my file, and I tell him I've been trying to develop my own thinking on the situation. I tell him I think of him as having both conservative and liberal aspects. And I talk, we talk about how much we have at different times loved living in the country. I talk about, don't you love dreams? They're kind of, <laughs> they're, they're logic. I mean, it's, it's, um, I talk about the time that I, the, you know, the long period of time that I, I spent in the Appalachian Mountains, in the southern Appalachians, and how much I, I love that. He talks about living in rural Texas and how much he loves that. He also talks about how much he loves wine. <laughs> In the dream, I think that um, I am developing uh, a kind of strong and even radical perspective, but one that he could listen to. It seems like a very friendly and respectful discourse. Now, that, that's, that's what I remembered. That was, that was what I wrote down in my, my dream journal. And it was interesting for me in a lot of ways. I mean, first of all, there was a way in which we were not, even though we had differences, we were not in opposition. Um, and there was also a way in which I could really be myself. I could express my views with their strength, with their strengths. I, in, in, the, in the language of the dream, I said, I'm developing a radical perspective on this, but I could also, it was someone that he could listen to. So it was a way that I could both be myself and be with someone who was very different, with whom there could be a really, you know, a bad opposition. And there were differences, but I could be myself. And the other, the other point I would look to is that I was able to, in the dream, and I'm, I'm sure if I looked back at other dreams, there were other scenarios that played out with different results. But in this particular dream, I, could, I was also trying to be skillful and not be provocative by talking about Nazis. You know, that I was trying to be skillful and really have the aim of communicating and that the result was um, something that was not oppositional, that was not creating a dualism, but that we could explore the differences. And the extent to, to which that is total wishful thinking, we'll leave that up to dream analysts. <laughs> yeah, please. You don't really talk about how you feel in the dream. Mm-hmm. Well, I felt good. I felt good. I felt uh, like we were connecting. Yeah, I felt I felt like we were connecting. We were we were sharing things we loved. It felt connected, warm, 
friendly. I didn't feel judgmental. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't feel judgmental in the dream. Um, and it, w- it was interesting because it, in a way, it points to some of what we're exploring, what we'll explore with these steps. And I, I just brought out that dream because I think it, it probably was in part activated by reflecting on this topic over the last week. And you may, you too, may have dreams of people with whom you uh, have been in opposition. We can report them next week. So, you know, the usual, what's the usual model that we have with people with whom we're in opposition? It's usually a kind of dualism. And it's usually a dualism in which uh, there's a very simple structure. It's something like this. I'm good, they're bad. (laughs) It's actually not any more subtle than that. (laughs) You know, and so, and we see this, we can see this in our own lives. We can see this. Just think of your own uh, person with whom you're in opposition. You know, and, and I was reflecting on this also in the last week because I, for whatever reason, it doesn't usually happen. I got three really mean-spirited emails directed personally at me in the last week, and, and, I, and I could, I could, I could notice. I could just notice a little bit of there's a shock. You know, there's a little shock, and a little bit of the defense mechanisms come up that just go, eh, you know, and, and maybe there's a moment of judgment, maybe, you know, sometimes more than a moment. And there, it, it's interesting because it's that, that opposition is, uh, it's, it's a strong one, that sense of I'm good, the other person's bad, I believe in justice, they're oppressive, we want to, you know, we want to bring about freedom, they're dictatorial, you know, I have good intentions and acting in the appropriate way. My coworker, her relative, or sometimes partner, is definitely not. <laughs> Please. One thing I've noticed with that is when I do that, and then I try to move on to, we just have different mm-hmm. ideas. Da, da, da. I go right into, I stay oppositional, but it's like, if they're not bad, then I must be bad, because mm-hmm. it's still that. Mm-hmm. It's so cultural that mm-hmm. one's bad and one's good. Yeah. So then I try to sort of remake myself to fit the other person's yeah. agenda. Yeah. They're di- they're, really derailing. There are different ways that, that, that this opposition forms, and some of us may be uncomfortable being right, and therefore, but we're much more comfortable being wrong. You know, and it's interesting, and maybe we can explore that more in the discussion, but I think for the for the sake of our exploration, it's useful to see that kind of radical opposition. You know, at the extreme, it becomes an opposition where the other is uh, barely a human being. You know, where you know where the other is in a way dehumanized. And of course, in war and in political rhetoric and so forth, that happens. You know, I brought in a book that um, was published, uh, I think, almost 20 years ago, called Faces of the Enemy. Some of you may know this book, Reflections of the Hostile Imagination by Sam Keane. It's got two subtitles. The, third, the second subtitle is The Psychology of Enmity. And in the book, there is a, it's a powerful book on the subject, but it has, also has uh, a collection of propaganda posters from the 20th century, just hundreds of them. You know, so you see, we can see what in the political realm happens when one has an enemy. 
one can see how the Nazis, for example, saw Jews as vermin. You know, how um, African Americans in the early part of the 20th century were seen as apes and gorillas in a lot of cartoons. We can see how uh, Japanese in World War II are depicted as rats by official propaganda posters. We can see the left-wing depiction of the police in the 1960s as pigs. You know? We can see how Americans uh, in uh, Vietnam are seen as gangsters. We can see Muslims as evil terrorists. We can see um, Israelis depicted as Nazis, you know, and so forth. And there's, this, that that's, there's that very, very stark opposition. Now, there are a lot of problems, with, obviously, with that kind of dualism. The main one is that it just keeps us ensnared in the cycles of suffering and reactivity. You know, and obviously, that kind of stance is right at the heart of, much of the, many of the wars, conflicts, feuds, violence of our times. And so finding ways to work directly with that tendency to form oppositions is right at the center of both personal peace and peace in our communities and peace in the world. And so people who have explored what that is about can really make incredible contributions because we, we can study what that is about, that forming of the oppositions. We study it in ourselves, uh, and we work on that, and we, we explore it. Part of what's also problematic about that opposition is that we, in a way, forget about our own responsibility. We, in psychological language, we would say that we project our shadow onto the other, whom we see as wrong, evil, bad, and so forth. And we don't see the same qualities in ourself. Thomas Merton said this, it is not only our hatred of others that is dangerous, but also and above all our hatred of ourselves, particularly that hatred of ourselves which is too deep and too powerful to be consciously faced. For it is this which makes us see our own evil in others and unable to see it in ourselves. Again, psychologically, that's called projection of the shadow. The shadow is the part that we don't know well in ourselves, that we shun. And we may see that in meditation. We may sometimes notice that there are parts of ourselves which surface, which we just go, I don't want to admit that. I don't want that. You know, that we can study in meditation. We can study our own shadow. Carl Jung, in this uh, very powerful analysis, the psychologist Jung has this very, um, you know, very succinct summary of, that, of the mechanism of uh, projection. He says, that which we don't see in ourselves and don't know and recognize in ourselves, we tend to project onto the other, into the, into the outside world, where we encounter it as demonic. And so it's not hard to see a great deal of the uh, social and political world as this, um, you know, intense mutual projection of shadows. You know, you know we, we could see a lot of what's happening around the Middle East as the mutual projection of shadows. You know, George Bush and Osama bin Laden mutually projecting shadows, each with some truth, each with tremendous amount of projection. 
not in the same proportion necessarily, but there's something that, uh, in that mechanism that can make sense of the self-righteousness, the, 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 the sheer duality. One of the great resources to do it in a different way, to, to really question that opposition, comes from the 20th century movements of nonviolence. And so we see that people like Gandhi and King were very, very explicit that they wanted to be able to make changes without demonizing the other. And I think that's really what's called for anyone who wants to work with this in the, in the level of the community or in socially. We have to learn how to take stands, maybe a little bit like I did in the dream, but without demonizing the other. This is what Gandhi said. Acts of violence create bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. Our movement aims to exalt both sides. A nonviolent revolution is not a program of seizure of power. It is a program of transformation of relationships. That's key. Transformation of relationships. It is the acid test of nonviolence that in a nonviolent conflict, there is no rancor left behind. And in the end, the enemies are converted into friends. King said something very similar. Again, he was more using the the, um, ethic of Jesus, the love ethic, we might say. He said, we rise to the position of loving the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. One seeks to defeat the unjust system rather than individuals who are caught in the system. So, one way to make this real in our lives uh, is to find a way to turn this into a kind of everyday practice. And that's what I did with what I call opponent's practice. And if you choose to sign up for opponent's practice, we have six steps for you. (laughs) And the, the six steps are these. First, we intend, we go into the situation and we intend to learn from our opposition, from, our, from the duality, from the difficult situation in which we create the duality. In other words, we don't intend to win, we intend to learn from the situation. Not easy at all. Second, we can learn to reflect in ways that tend to ease the dualism some. And I'll go over some ways to do that. Third, we look very carefully at what our actual experience is with our opponent, with our, with our so-called enemy. Fourth, we do a kind of internal practice where we work very closely, look very closely at how our reactivity forms in relationship to the opponent. That might be to look at our judgments, to look at our anger, to work in a transformative way with the difficult states that arise when we have uh, an opponent the fear, the anger, the sadness, and so forth. Fifth, we work more from the heart area, and we can work with with the tools of loving-kindness, forgiveness. Um, Maybe some of you know the Tibetan practice of Tonglen. We work with these kind of tools that sort of shift the heart so so that maybe we're more connected, less oppositional. 
And then the sixth step, which I'll focus just a little bit on today, but more next time, is that we find also, as it were, more external ways of working with the situation. And this is where some aspects of the Eightfold Path come in, that we work with our speech particularly. We work with what are skillful ways to work with our speech when we're in an opposition, when we're in a conflict with an opponent or enemy. How can we work with our speech? How can we work with um, skillful ways to deal with conflict? How can we work with... uh, How can we do that interpersonally? How can we do that in a community or a family? How can we do that in the larger society? And that that is... um, All of these are challenging. But this is... This is... This is a, a way to work with it. And what I'll do as we, as we proceed through these six ste- steps, and primarily the first five this morning, think about your situation with your person with whom you were in opposition. And sort of take it one step at a time through that. And I'm going to reflect about um, a time when I really learned the most about this. I was... Uh, and I'm... I'm I'm um, actually fictionalizing the actual situation. So um, this actually isn't exactly the situation, but I'm making up a story that actually has a counterpart to a real situation, and I'm protecting the living and the dead by, <laughs> by, by doing that. So, so in my imagined but real situation, I, was, I found myself... Uh, going every two weeks to a two-hour meeting with a man that I'm going to call Steve. There, was actually an, there were actually several other people involved. And Steve was the director of a social change organization. And he, in my view, seemed to be a very poor listener and rather manipulative and control-obsessed. None of you have ever met people like this, but, <laughs> but just imagine <laughs> if you have. And so, and I would go into that situation, and I soon found myself really reactive. Like I would say something, and it was as if he didn't listen. And since he was in charge, some of the other people in the organization followed his lead and also didn't listen. The power dynamics and the whole show. And I, we're, all, we're all probably very familiar with these kind of situations. I started to find myself reactive. I would get judgmental, angry, I would withdraw emotionally, I would you know, think about it afterwards and so forth. It was, I, was, I was finding myself reactive and I was working with a mentor at the time and we really resolved to have this be a learning situation. So for, I didn't mention that this went on for two years, every two weeks. So first step, intend to learn from the opponent or enemy. It's, very, it's, it's incredibly important to be able to do that. Really hard, right? Because there's something in our energy which just wants to go to that I'm right, the other person's wrong stance. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we move to that position of learning? And maybe this takes us to the second step, that there are a lot of uh, reflections that we can do to work with this opponent. And again, I'm encouraging us to think about this not with the most difficult opponent or the most hardened enemy or opponent, but rather someone with whom we have moderate level of difficulty, like a co-worker with whom there's some friction or someone, you know, and again, it can be a public figure, it can be a private figure. So the second step is to reflect in different ways 
on the, uh, on the situation. And I listed a number of the reflections here. I don't know if I'll go over all of them. But these are extremely helpful because they ease the dualism. They shift the dualism. So we might reflect that I actually can learn from the situation. This is that, it, that my aim doesn't have to be simply to win, to get my way, that there may be something for me to learn. Shanti Deva in the 8th century said that having an opponent or enemy is incredibly valuable and that it's a key part of the whole process of waking up, of becoming free. He said, therefore, just like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my, on my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy, for my enemy assists me in my conduct of awakening. Thank you, enemy. Can you bow to your enemy before you, before you go into the situation? You know, can you really have that kind of approach? Not so easy, right? So these reflections don't mean that they immediately change us, but there's something that we can do that, that can help. And so we might also work with the, the intention. Is it possible that I might eventually become friends with the enemy, much like Gandhi was suggesting? Is that, can I reflect that that might be a possibility? If this is a future friend... Would I relate in that oppositional, self-righteous way? Maybe not. Another reflection might be on the, on the, um, the basic teaching that antagonism, hatred, and opposition never really resolve anything. The Buddha says, hatred never ends hatred. Only love ends hatred. That when we get into an oppositional cycle, there's never an end to it. One person can be on top for a while, but after, you know, if it's based on violence or based on that opposition, it just is a matter of time before the person who's been on the bottom then moves to be on the top. We might also reflect that there's suffering for both of us, that we're both suffering. This can sometimes help ease, that, that, that you know, we forget about the suffering of the other, we sometimes forget about the suffering of ourselves in the midst of such situations. We can also see how we often fixate on one quality of the opponent. We forget about any good qualities. All of a sudden, only the, in, in, in the situation I was in, only that ability to, inability to listen is at all important. You know? It's the whatever good qualities are there in the other person get forgotten. And so reflecting in these ways can be extremely helpful. How might, I not, how might I not be totally right? Radical question. Is it possible for me to see myself as possibly having something to learn, not being totally right? Again, we get ourselves in these locked-in situations, which from any sort of rational perspective are ridiculous, that I'm 100% right and the other person is 100% wrong. And yet we, yet we do that. What would it be to admit that I might be 80% right? <laughs> and the other person, 20% right. Well, even that is a, that's movement, isn't it? That's movement. So we, might, we, can, we can have those reflections. And so these series of reflections can be incredibly valuable because they shift the energy. They give us some room to actually go into the situation without this fixed, locked-in tendency. And then we can move to the third step, which is start to bring in 
the direct examination of experience, which is eventually what's going to transform things. This is where we bring in our mindfulness skills, our meditative skills, and we ask the question, the radical question, which we don't usually do with opponents or enemies, what's actually happening to me? What's going on? We start to make a radical shift because we can notice that what the reason that, I, that someone becomes an enemy or an opponent for me is because I have bad experiences or because I have difficult experiences. I have anger, frustration, grief, sadness, or fear. So at least in part, what I don't like about the other person is because of my experiences. Now this is a radical shift. It doesn't say that the other person doesn't have responsibility and doesn't have himself or herself a lot to learn. But here we're saying, I take some responsibility myself for the nature of the opposition, for the nature of the dualism. Ideally, both of us are doing this. Often in reality, the other person isn't doing it, but we can do it. We can, in a way, in a, in a way it's like unilateral disarmament. It's, it's like I can, it's like the Buddha says, I do not fight with the world, but he would say, sometimes the world fights with me. But when I don't fight, something really shifts. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't at all mean that I don't stand up for what's important. And so when we look at that experience, we start, we stop so much saying, the problem is entirely external. That's what we usually do with enemies or opponents, isn't it? We say, it, the problem is out there. It's with the other person. And here we start to say, I have at least some responsibility. And so in my own situation, when I was going to these meetings, I started to look more carefully at what I was experiencing. I noticed, oh, I'm getting really judgmental. Oh, I'm really, my body is kind of getting rigid because you know, I'm not being listened to. Oh, I start seeing, oh, this is a larger pattern. The larger pattern... I can see at other times when someone doesn't listen to me. And it's a big, to not be listened to is a big thing, right? You know, I, I've heard some psychologists say that what we most want as human beings is to be heard and to be cared for. And that may be, and so not, I don't want to downplay how powerful not to be listened to. I think we all know, right? We know that a lot of times to not be heard, to not be listened to is a very, can feel like a direct attack on our being. You know, so it's not, I don't at all mean to, to uh, downplay it. But we can start to investigate what that's about. We can say, oh, I can notice, oh, when this doesn't happen at other times, I have similar patterns of reactivity. And we start to become students of our own reactivity, which is something that I believe is right at the heart of applying our mindfulness practice to our daily life. We would much like it that we would meditate, feel peaceful, everything would be happy ever after. Has anyone found that? (laughs) But rather, I think what we have to do is we have to become students of our own reactivity and notice it over and over again, study it over and over again. This may not be what you were wanting to hear this morning, but this, I, I think, in my own experience, this is what I did when I went and had these conversations, these meetings with Steve. I had to look over and over again at the reactivity. And that kind of takes us into the fourth, the fourth step, which is to really 
keep on looking and working with that reactivity, noticing the patterns in more intimate detail. Starting to, I could start to notice, oh, there's a stimulus, there's a reaction, here's where I tend to go. It's starting to see the patterns in a lot of detail. That's what it means to be a student of one's own reactivity. Starting to see when this happens, I tend to go there. Over time, what I experienced going to these meetings was that I would start to notice the whole process starting to get slowed down. I would start to study it. I would start, I began to notice that when I wasn't listened to, I could actually feel some kind of pain. Normally, what we do with our opponents or enemies is we just react, and we actually, in some sense, don't even feel too much, or sometimes we do, but often we just react. And I started to feel that it was actually painful not to be listened to. And what that did was it made everything more in slow motion, so it was like stimulus, not being listened to. Oh, there's some pain. Oh, I can feel my judgment starting to form. And if I could slow it down like that, I started to have some choices. I didn't have to go right into reactivity. I could start to really see the process more clearly. I have a friend who when something happens interpersonally that feels difficult for her, she says, ouch. I find that extremely skillful because it's acknowledging that there's some pain there because typically what we do when someone says something, we just instantly, it's like bam, bam, right? That's what reactivity is about. It's automatic. And what we can do if we can study it closely, we start to slow down the process. And, then we, and that's exactly what was starting to happen with, um, at my meetings. The process would slow down and I began able to feel what was painful and start to be able to respond in a different way. As I could see the reactivity, I didn't have to keep on reacting in the same way. I didn't need to go to judgment so much. Sometimes I could start to say things, you know, like, uh, that doesn't feel so good. You know, or I could say, I'm a little frustrated, I'm not sure you've heard my point, but I want to keep making it. And I could say it in a non-reactive way, by the fact that I could slow down like that. Then the fifth step is to bring in the qualities of the heart. It might be to do loving-kindness towards myself or even towards the other. Those of us who've practiced loving-kindness know that in the sequence of instructions for loving-kindness, there's the direction to work with a difficult person. It usually is seen as an advanced practice. And actually, the difficult person is a kind of Western, uh, mushy translation of the actual Asian term, which clearly is enemy. It's not difficult person, it's enemy. (laughs) And so, how do you do loving kindness? Well, you have to generate that energy and have it be stronger in oneself, and then you gradually bring it to someone with whom there's friction. And again, it is more developing the quality of the heart, where we might also work with forgiveness, which again, can be very difficult with someone with whom we're in opposition. But how can we begin to develop that, that quality of forgiveness? We might say, I want to forgive. Forgiving doesn't mean to condone what the person did, It doesn't mean to accept it, that it was okay. And it doesn't mean to say that we won't act. What it does is it tends to 
um, help us not to be reactive so much. So we can still respond, but less out of reactivity. So there are the, the fifth step is working with these qualities of the heart to bring that to one's, one's opponent or enemy. And then the last step, which I'll just be very brief on here and, and take more time, my intention is next time, would be to find skillful ways to bring that non-dualistic way of being with, a, with, a, uh, with an opponent or an enemy out into the interpersonal realm. Everything we've mentioned so far is more internal. Very important. But we can also start bringing the quality of a non-dualistic response into the very interaction. And here in the handout, I highlighted three ways to do that, which I'll just really be brief on, and then we'll open things up. Speech is really, really crucial. Finding, and this is where we can tie in with the Eightfold Path, the emphasis on wise speech, finding skillful ways, and I, again, I don't want to put my dream as some paradigm or of skillful speech, but there was something, there was in the dream, I was not being antagonistic, but I was also being strong and clear and, and in a way forceful. And there was something, there's something about how can we do that with our speech so that we are not creating a dualism, but we're not, as it were, giving up our own um, understanding. That's extremely challenging, isn't it? It's something to, that we might explore in the next week. How do you do that? How do you, how do you work with that? Um, some, you know, there, there are resources. We've sometimes looked at wise speech in these Wednesday mornings. There are a lot of resources there. There are resources in great resources in the discipline called nonviolent communication. And, you know, I'm, we're actually going to be doing a five-day retreat here at Spirit Rock in September, totally focused on connecting meditation and mindfulness and loving kindness with our use of speech. If you want a boot camp, so to speak, <laughs> but it's it's a retreat totally focused on that, on how do we bring our speech into alignment with our meditation approach. And so it's a, very, it's a very powerful area. There's a lot that could also be said about ways of approaching conflict, which I'd love to explore maybe some next time, that, that there are tremendous resources for, using, for working with conflict in a different way than we usually do. There are ways of using speech, for example, asking questions rather than making judgments can be extremely helpful. Asking for information instead of just, eh, you're bad, you know. Or, uh, and, then, and I'm sure we have other resources here. So, and then there are ways, if we look to the resources of nonviolent traditions, there are a lot of ways to bring that into conflicts that are on a little larger scale in a community, maybe in an organization, and in a larger society that really have the same spirit of this... Um, of this approach. And so I think I'll end here and, and say that this, to me, this is one of the, the um, very direct ways to start bringing the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths, of our mindfulness practice, of our meditation, directly into a part of our lives which for most of us is a difficult part. You know, that we all have the, you know, I think we all have tendencies sometimes to have these oppositions which, which leave us 
you know, I think feeling frustrated at the best and, and, you know, and having a lot of suffering at the worst. And so to, be, to have that intention to apply this and to bring, to me this gives a kind of a, a set of guidelines that make it pretty practical for how to do it in terms of our, our work with opponents or enemies. So I wish us well in this pursuit. I wish myself well with all those emails. Emails are another level. <laughs> and, and, uh, and thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.